This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hi there and welcome to our August 2018 episode. I'm Dave, the magazine's production editor, and I'm joined in the studio today by editor Chris. Hello. And news editor Ezzy. Hello. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to meteor shower expert and meteorite hunter, Dr. Peter Jeniskens, and telling you our top stargazing tip for the month. But now, we're going to take a look at what's hot in the August edition of the magazine. Chris, what's caught your eye? Well, Dave, this month I was really interested in our um, Passion for Space column, uh, which has been written by um, Dr. Andrew Steele. Now, he's a, a senior staff scientist at the... Carnegie Institute uh, in Washington, D.C., um, and he's an astrobiologist, and he's one of the key people behind the uh, recent discovery of organics on Mars um, by uh, using Curiosity data. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really interesting to get the insight from him behind all the research that went into it and the kind of all the data crunching, which is what it sounds like from his column, that went into the discovery. <laughs> It, is, it does sound a bit like to, to the layman on the outside. It sounds like we've been looking for life on Mars for ages, and now they seem to be redefining what life is to prove that there's life on Mars. <laughs> I mean, is that what's going on? What he what he is saying in the column actually is that there needs to be um, he needs to establish certain kind of baseline for um, what what kind of chemistry looks like um, when it's not to do with any any life or this kind of so-called abiotic chemistry, what that looks like, before you can then go on and say, well, these 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 um, molecules look slightly different. Um, you know, do they do they look like are they are they the kind of things that might um, be be kind of the precursors to life or prebiotic kind mm. of stuff? So, um, 
What was it that they, the Curiosity actually found on? It was um, carbon molecules, which were very big, which were kind of strings of, of these kind of um, compounds strung together, which, which looked like or contained compounds that, um, that looked like kind of life on Earth, basically. Mm, so like that, organic that, chemistry. Uh, yes, organic chemistry, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's fascinating to um, hear from him as well because it's kind of uh, astrobiology has always been a kind of the, one of the more kind of esoteric branches of, yeah. of astronomy and it, it's not really had much kind of grounding before and this and he's one of the people who's really trying to put put it on a really secure footing um, and, and kind of establish these things for something that is it's going to be quite tricky to find life which might not even look like life on earth anyway so how do you do that we might not know what to look for even yeah i know that's one of those things that most people as soon as they hear the words organic chemistry they automatically think it's like oh well it's going to be you know like plant matter and you know Mm. like they they found compost on mars Mm, mm. um but actually it's there's all sorts of ways that you can get these organic compounds and i think it's really interesting to find out what that is it kind of puts a new spin on war of the worlds though doesn't it with uh, the chances (laughs) of anything coming from mars are a million to one but like maybe they've just been coming here for centuries on meteorites and stuff (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly that's one of those big theories is like life actually started somewhere else and came on a meteor yeah Mm. Um, well actually one one of the things that um is interesting is that Andrew Steele says in the column is that they found uh, they used um, a Martian meteorite that that fell to Earth um, to set up the kind of baseline for looking then for these yeah. these other compounds molecules that that were were lifelike or, or um, you know biological here. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it all gets a bit all of it gets a bit existential, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, 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 so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. A short column, but it's, there's lots to consider from it. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Mind blowing. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I've been um, uh, one of the other features that really caught my eye. Just because it's full of great science fictiony type <laughs> concepts, um, is uh, that we've got a feature on the uh, the future of space telescopes, spinning off from the fact that after nine uh, after the twenty thirties. We just won't be able to get bigger and bigger and bigger traditional telescopes mm. um, launched from Earth. They just won't fit in the spacecraft. And we're only having to fold them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> concertinas and all this kind of... They're yeah. using a lot of or, um, origami, aren't they, to yeah. work out how the, the most efficient way to fold mirrors. Yeah, yeah they've got one, one that looks like an umbrella that like, sort of pops out. Wow, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, actually, it looks more like a jellyfish if you look at the... Look. This, the, mm. the diagram we've got in the magazine does look like a jellyfish ground or something. Jellyfish uh, in space. That's, <laughs> that's a sci-fi novel waiting to happen. <laughs> are, these, are these alternatives to um, the kind of Newtonian telescope with mirrors in space, are these alternatives... Um, in construction now, are they, or, or how far away are we? They, they're, they're, well, they're, they're, there's two types of way to go. There, there's a way of like trying to keep the Newtonian idea, but just as we say, Constantine Ritz scrunching it up, um, which could take us the next stage. But then beyond that, there are weird like uh, lensless telescopes being developed, you know, like, which uh, mm-hmm. apparently can read barcodes from the moon, which is, like, great if you want to do your ads to shopping, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, you know. I suppose that'd be, that'd be useful for, you know, the people um, in, uh, like, future lunar colonies, you know, they can get their 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 deliveries from home and <laughs> yeah, do yeah. their self-service from the moon. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they are actually, um, as far as I understand, they're not in construction yet, but they are, um, mm. they're forming the next basis for, a, there's a big meeting. The uh, NASA 2020 Astrophysics Decadal, I was presuming that's how you say, survey, um, a lot of the ideas have been pitched there, and I think they're going to be choosing uh, a couple, maybe one or a couple, that they will actually take forward 
um, might be their their big project for the 2030s. So um, they're definitely seriously considering them now. Um, some of them are in prototype stage. Actually, yeah, the the um, <laughs> the barcode reader from space, uh, um, they built a prototype of that, but they had to do some very clever thing with mirrors to approximate it looking from space, apparently. But, uh, but yeah, they, they managed to get some results with that. So, um, uh, yeah, these things are underway. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I find it amazing that... Um, uh, the the Newtonian design has uh, has lasted us so so well and for so long. You know, when was it developed? Newton developed in the seventeenth century, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think it says, doesn't it, that it would he would recognise the Hubble Space Telescope or the JWST yeah. if he saw it. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It's, if you actually look at the Hubble telescope, it's got big wings on because it's got solar yeah. panels, but it's essentially the same telescope that, you know, <laughs> yeah. you'd have in your garage. Yeah. Um, well, in your back garden, it's but also the oh the umbrella just reminded me the umbrella um, one that we talked about earlier which would be a newtonian but like on for like an umbrella it's got one of the best acronyms ever uh it's actually called a precisely extremely large reflective telescope using reconfigurable elements Blimey. which somehow they've managed to make that come to aperture <laughs> I, do, I do sometimes wonder how much of sort of the, the time they're spent developing telescopes is spent on coming up with a really good acronym. Yes. Mm. <laughs> quite often they are quite often they're backronyms, so they're yeah. not acronyms, are they? Come That's up, a great they phrase. come up with yeah. the with the with the cool word to start off the scene. How can we how can we fill that out a little bit? <laughs> but yeah, it takes yeah. a long time to okay. do that as well. Uh Izzy, what you what caught your eye in this issue? Um so this month I've been going deep into the world of uh meteorite observing or meteor observing, sorry. Um and sort of looking like it's one usually one of those things that most people when they start in astronomy it's one of the first things they do go out and see the Perseids which will be very good this month um but but how do you sort of take that to the next level um and so I talked to to lots of people from from the the BAA and from various different meteor hunting things um finding all about you know how you can observe things visually how you can uh, uh set up a camera in your garden so that was pretty cool but I think one of the things that really interested me was the fact that you can find micrometeorites um, so this is the sort of space dust that falls to Earth that that, that doesn't 
doesn't quite completely burn up, and you can find it in your gutters at home. <laughs> um, I actually gave it a go. I wasn't terribly successful, but it was quite... I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so I got a couple of funny looks as I was sort of standing on, on a stepladder with my ba- a, a, a magnet in a plastic bag in my gutters trying yeah, because, because to that, Because that's, that's how the guy does it. Yeah. That's how the guy does it, isn't it? With, with magnets inside a plastic bag. Yes. And why the plastic bags? Um, so it's basically, it's it's so that you can get the, the, the meteorites off. You're, you're looking for, for tiny magnetic uh, metal particles um, and if stuff sticks to a magnet it can be quite hard to get it off again um, so you get the plastic bags you can just take the magnet out of the plastic bag and then you have a bunch of metal particles um, but uh, yeah it, it was uh, actually reading um, it was uh, done by a man called John Larson he was um, he was a musician and he sort of was doing this kind of meteorite hunting um, in his spare time between gigs, essentially. And he was, like, getting people in Oslo, because um, he's Norwegian, to send him boxes of their gutter. Like, sort of, if you've cleaned <laughs> out your gutters, can you please send me a box of the stuff? Um, and he worked out this sort of very sort of uh, rigorous procedure of trying to find it. And now there's people all over the world who have been trying to do this and managing to, to find these tiny little grains of, of meteorite um, and, and sending them off and getting identified and, and then, then often scientists getting a hold of them and things so I, I think that's quite cool if that there's there's lots of people um you you can actually sort of find something like that in your own home and mm, then send that's it incredible, off isn't yeah. It? yeah how do you how do you um do they do you have to when you if you've got something that's metallic do you is that is that it if you if it's just metallic if it sticks to the magnet is it a meteorite no, well, this oh, is. Do you, do you have to do a little bit else? So, to this check? is one of the reasons why it took a while to sort of get people to understand, like, why it took them a while to work out how to do it is because um, if you're in an urban environment, so mm. in, in a town, then there's all kinds of pollution that's around mm. that all have like tiny little metallic particles. Um, and apparently, so one of the last sort of things you do is once you've got all of your metallic stuff and you've cleaned it and you've put it through a sieve, um, and then you look at it under a microscope. Uh. Um, and then apparently meteorites are very distinctive because they tend to be quite spherical. They've sometimes got a bit of glass on them because they got very, very hot. So mm, yeah. sort of yeah. silica on there turns to glass. Um, and so they're quite distinctive once as soon as you get them under a microscope. Mm. Um, but yes, it's one of the reasons why it can be a bit tricky to find them in the first place is because there's just so much other stuff around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I tell you, I had my gutters clean recently. I'm like, oh, goodness me. There's <laughs> <laughs> like plants growing out of it. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. There might be motion blots, you know. Maybe. Yeah. So didn't somebody actually find a slightly bigger meteorite recently. Yes, they did. Um, so another thing that people do when they're, they're observing meteors coming in, um, they quite often have cameras and stuff. And one of the sort of big goals of people watching for meteors with cameras is trying to actually recover a meteorite when it comes in. And yes, somebody managed, to, a group managed to do that um, in Botswana uh, back in June of this year. And I actually caught up with one of the, the leaders of that expedition, Peter Jeniskins. I'm talking to Peter Jeniskin, a meteor astronomy from the SETI Institute. Um, on the 2nd of June, a meteorite fell on the Botswana Central Game Reserve, um, which Peter Jeniskin uh, went out to go and find. Um, so, Peter, could you tell me a little bit about uh, people find meteorites all the time? Uh, what was so special about this particular find? Well, what was so special was that uh, this um, 
uh, middle asteroid had been spotted in space before it impacted. And so it was uh, tracked for a short period of time, uh, and it was observed by astronomers. And um, we have a lot of asteroids out there that uh, never hit the Earth, that uh, passes by, um, that uh, we only get to look at with telescopes. And so uh, to have a chance to actually find a piece of one of these asteroids and link the astronomy with uh, with actual data you can study in the laboratory is, is fantastic. How was the meteorite found whilst it was still out in space? There are ongoing surveys of asteroids um, to find the ones that could be dangerous impacting us. Uh, we like to know where they are. We like to um, measure their tracks in space. Uh, these surveys are being done at um, uh, telescope sites such as the Carolina uh, Sky Survey in Arizona, um, the Atlas Project in uh, Hawaii, and there's a few more. Um, they um, point the telescopes at the sky, they take pictures, uh, and they look for things moving, a little point of light that moves between the stars. Uh, they track these points of light, and uh, that way they uh, are able to determine what their orbit is around the sun. And once you'd, you'd seen the, the, the meteor that was out in space, um, when it hit the Earth's atmosphere, how, how did you then know whereabouts to look to try and find a piece of it? Um, to know where to look to find a piece of it, that was the challenge here, because this asteroid wasn't tracked very long. Um, it uh, impacted the Earth only eight hours after it was first spotted. And so uh, uh, we, we had uh, some information to go on that we needed to try and confine the uh, position. So what I did is I teamed up with uh, Oliver Moses of the University of uh, Botswana at Moon, uh, Okavanka's Research Institute, and uh, with Oliver we uh, traveled uh, through the region and, and went to uh, places to see if we could find video security cameras that uh, accidentally recorded this fireball. Uh, and we found some uh, in Rekops, which is uh, to the uh, east of the impact site, and also in Naun, which is to the north. And uh, from those videos, um, we were basically looking for shadows cast by the fireball. And so from the direction of the shadows, we could determine uh, where exactly uh, this object had uh, disintegrated. So it was from the, the shadows rather than actually looking sort of on the sky directly for the fireball itself? Uh, yes. Uh, the, uh, the the fireball is so bright that if you see it uh, from sides that close up, it, it just blooms the camera. Um, the most video security cameras are also pointed down or inside buildings. And so, um, uh, but the shadows are very nice to uh, to determine directions. And so when, when you then you had a, a rough idea of, of whereabouts it fell, what was sort of the next stage? How did you actually go out and, and go about finding it? Yeah, so the next, the next step is uh, to realize that when a small asteroid comes in the atmosphere and it, uh, you know, meets its end, it, it catastrophically breaks apart into many pieces. All those pieces uh, fall to the ground uh, in the ambient winds. And so the atmosphere is blowing the pieces off course. And so you have to calculate uh, uh, what those wind uh, speeds are at, you know, between uh, the ground level and the altitude where this thing uh, disrupted. And uh, and so uh, we uh, uh, were able to 
get data from um, uh, yes, uh, I think, and that's um, uh, the efforts of the Royal Dutch Meteorological Institute, and they provided me with a nice uh, wind profile for models, and from that I calculated where on the ground uh, uh, these meteorites uh, should have fallen. Okay, so now we had uh, a place to go, uh, but uh, it still then needs a lot of people to to actually have a chance to find something. From what I know about Botswana terrain, it's not particularly, It's there's lots of, of greenery and things around. Was it particularly hard to sort of track down one rock amongst a yes, bunch of other was. rocks? <laughs> yes, it was uh, hard to track down this, uh, this one rock. Uh, we were very lucky in a way. Um, the search campaign came together um, from uh, three institutes that participated in this. Um, the, the lead was taken by the Botswana uh, International University of Science and Technology, which brought a team of uh, uh, five people uh, in the field. Um, it was led by the Botswana uh, Geosciences Institute, who brought a team of three people, and um, um, Oliver took uh, uh, two people and themselves uh, into the into the field. So we had about 12 people searching, also with support from the uh, from the uh, Central Kalahari Game Reserve Park Rangers. Um, and even with 12 people, uh, you know, we walked around for uh, for <laughs> long distance um, and initially just could not find meteorites. The the terrain is is searchable. It's sort of it's sort of sandy. Uh, it's sandy terrain with puffs of grass. But there, is, uh, there is so much vegetation that you, you really can't look uh, beyond uh, just a few meters from where, from where you're walking. And so finding large pieces is very hard. And um, so we concentrated on looking for the, for the small pieces. And, uh, but that meant, you know, going into the wild uh, for 12 kilometers, uh, setting up camp in the savannah and, um, you know, and, and, and searching. But well, you got lucky, um, and and you you tracked down uh, the, this meteorite. Um, so what will happen to it now? So uh, one one meteorite was found, and uh, then it's just the beginning of this project. It's really just the beginning because uh, the next step uh, is going to be to try and figure out what it is, um, what its uh, uh, what its collisional history is with, uh, in sort of what environment it uh, was formed and. Uh, and how it evolved and how it made it to to the earth, um, and all of that is going to be a you know, real detective puzzle. So um, we're hoping that a lot of people will uh, have a chance to uh, to study this and um, and and learn a lot about it. Well, Peter, thank you very much for for taking the time out to talk to us. That was I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this meteorite and and, and hearing more information about where it came from and, and all those sorts of things. So thank you for taking yeah. us through the beginning of that journey. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That was Peter Jenniskens. Find out more about how you can search for micrometeorites yourself in August's issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. There's loads to see in the night sky this month, which you can find out all about in our guide to the night sky in the August issue. 
But if there's one thing you really should see, it's the Perseids. Now, this is a reliably substantial meteor shower, one of the year's biggest, which in 2018 coincides with a new moon, so the sky will be nice and dark and any meteors will be easy to spot. The time to watch is between the 9th and the 16th of August, and the, with the peak of activity on the night of the 12th to the 13th. To observe the Perseids, the best thing to do is uh, find a dark location away from stray lights, grab something to sit on, preferably a sunbed if you've got one, so you're nice and comfortable, and start looking up at the sky at an angle of around 60 degrees. Any direction is good, but we'd probably recommend looking south earlier in the evening and east later in the night towards dawn. Bring plenty of warm drinks or soup to keep the spirits up until the magical moment when you see your first meteor. At the peak, you should see about 30 to 35 meteors an hour, and although the rate of meteors increases after 1am, there should still be trails visible earlier in the evening. So, that's it from us this month. You can find out more about meteor observing in the August issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also test out a Ritchie Christian uh, imaging telescope, a go-to mount especially for solar observing, and a specialist deep sky camera. Look at how space telescopes could go on getting bigger and bigger, Hear what it's like to be a crew member on a Mars analogue mission and have observing and imaging tips from some of the most experienced amateurs in the country. From us all here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.